welcome, welcome to the one year anniversary of Masters of Social Gastronomy. Hooray! Hooray! Well, I'm Sarah Lohman, and I write the blog Four Pounds Flour. I'm a historic gastronomist, which means I cook a lot of weird old things and then I eat them, and I call it history. It's true. I'm Jonathan Soma. Uh, I run the Brooklyn Brainery. And I'm more of a food science guy, I guess. Mm -hmm. I cook modern, creepy, weird things mm -hmm. through the power of science and almost poison myself every time we do this talk. And tonight, for the one year anniversary of Masters of Social Gastronomy, we're going to be talking all about monosodium glutamates. I'm going to talk first, and I'm going to talk about the history of MSG, which is surprisingly long, where it came from, what happens, why we're now afraid of it. Yeah. And then I talk about, uh, so umami, the, the secret fifth flavor. I talk about its history and its relationship to MSG and why we adore MSG so much. Okay, so check out this bottle here. Notice it says meat tenderizer, and then underneath it says with MSG, proudly emblazoned on the front of this bottle. Can you even imagine seeing a product in America today that announces it has MSG in it on the front. So when I found this bottle, it was, I mean, it was a little bit of a mind fuck for me. I was like, wait, what? Who, that's like saying now with poisoned on the front of a bottle, right? That doesn't make you wanna purchase this product in 2013, but clearly that was a selling point back in about 1940 when this bottle is from. So that got me curious. What, what is MSG? Where did it come from and how did it turn into this thing that we are so scared of? That's what we're gonna talk about. And the story starts with this very innocent looking bowl of broth called dashi. This will all come together in the end. Now dashi is, um, well it's a backbone of Japanese cooking. Much like stock or a mirepoix in French cooking, it's there to add depth of flavor, to improve the flavors of food, to tie it all together. It's a basic stock that can be made with um, several ingredients. It can be made with anchovies. It can be made with shiitake mushrooms. Sometimes it's made with um, shaved, dried shaved bonito, and bonito is a type of fish. But it is always made with um, kombu. Kombu is kelp comes from the ocean. Here is a really cool historic photo of women harvesting kelp out of the ocean. Now it's mostly um, cultivated and you just pull it out of the ocean. It's like big leafy fronds. So to make kombu, it's really simple. You kind of soak it in water, you uh, heat it up over really about an hour, but you don't let it come to a boil. And um, it's, it's, well, let's just leave it there. This stock is considered such an important flavor element, not only in Japanese cooking, but it's used as a basis for soups and sauces in some of the finest restaurants in New York City. Le Bernardin is a big supporter of using adashi um, kombu stock, um, as well as per se to use in their cooking. It is considered just having a really wonderful, intense, kind of magical flavor. So why is this important to us? Well, the link between um, kombu dashi and MSG is this guy, um, Dr. Kakune Ikeda. Excuse me for butchering Japanese. If you are Japanese, I am not, so I apologize in advance. Um, he's this kind of rather mild-mannered, bespectacled, mustachioed um, Japanese scientist. 
And very early in the 19th, excuse me, very early in the 20th century, he went to study biochemistry in Germany. Um, Germany in the early 19th century was at the head of the field in organic chemistry. Now, what was even more amazing about his trip to Germany than the man that he studied with or actually the organic chemistry was that for the first time he was exposed to Western food. Tomatoes and Parmesan cheese left a particular impression on him because within these foods he noticed a flavor that he couldn't identify, one that he had not considered before. Let me read you just a quick quote, uh, quote from Dr. Akita. An attentive taster will find out something common in the complicated tastes of asparagus, tomatoes, cheese, and meat, which is quite peculiar and cannot be classed under any of the well-defined four taste qualities, sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. Um, that was from a presentation he made in 1912. So when he came home, he sought this flavor out in, oh, we'll get to this too, in Japanese cuisine. But the main reason he went to Germany is because um, he felt that the Japanese diet wasn't healthy enough. And I love this drawing up here of, of early 20th century Dr. Akita like hanging out with all these like gigantic hooded Germans. And he's so sad because he's like, why are we so small? These Germans are so tall and blonde and wear hoodies all the time. So this bothered him. And you can see he's dedicating himself to improve the health of the Japanese diet and the Japanese population. Um, outside of the comic book world, he was also very focused on um, the poor in Japan. How can we effectively and cheaply improve the diet of the poor? Okay, so he leaves Germany and he goes back to Japan and he is, legend goes, sitting at dinner with his wife one day. He's, he's like, you know, he's with it in Japan. He is a professor at the Imperial University of Tokyo. He is like the science guy. So he's sipping dinner. It's a vegetable and tofu soup. And he turns to his wife and says, wife, I don't, Mrs. Akita, I don't think his name is even recorded much in history. Um, he says, why is this soup so delicious? What is your secret? And she says, oh, well, it's, it's this dried seaweed. It's kombu. I put it in the broth and it makes it very, very delicious. And he says, Huh. He's got the little light bulb, pops out of his head, and he says, this broth is neither salty nor sweet nor bitter nor sour. This is this other flavor that I experienced in Germany. And he realized that this other flavor was connected to the kombu. So he makes a big, big, big pot of kombu stock, of uh, dashi kombu, this broth, and then he boils it down to essentially its essence. And what was left at the bottom, he discovered, was glutamic acid. There he is holding the vial in the cartoon. And here is his actual vial of glutamic acid that he pulled from the kombu. And actually, if you, when you've got the kombu, the kelp in your hand, you'll see that it's covered in this white powder. Um, and that's actually glutamic acid that has um, settled on the surface of the kelp, that white powder, the same thing that's in this little jar. When you take glutamic acid, which is naturally occurring in foods like Parmesan cheese, tomatoes, and particularly in this sea kelp, in fact, I believe it has, someone will talk more about this, um, it has one of the highest amounts of glutamic acid per the rest of its compound. Um, when you stabilize that with sodium, it becomes monosodium glutamate. So he takes, finds this glutamic acid, he adds sodium, he gets MSG, 
And he's got the very, very first MSG. <coughs> Comes from this naturally occurring substance in this seaweed, this kelp broth. So he's like, okay, so what am I gonna do with this? Well, part of the reason he was so motivated to do this research is that he believed that we could improve people's diet by making crappy food taste better. That was his big plan. Um, in his own words, having always regretted the poor diet of our nation, well, I don't know why he's so hard on Japanese food, but all right, fine. Um, having, having always regretted the poor diet of our nation, I had long contemplated how it might be remedied. Then it occurred to me that manufacturing a good, inexpensive seasoning to make bland, nutritious food tasty might be a way to accomplish my objective. So he's like, okay, well, food that is really healthy is so gross. It is so bland. It doesn't taste like anything. But if we put some of this powder on it that has this amazing flavor from the seaweed, we'll make it taste better. And he decides to give this flavor, which he defines as one of the fifth basic flavors, a new name, and he calls it umami. We've probably all heard the, the phrase umami. It is New York City, after all. It is the flavor of savoriness, and it's a very hot topic right now in the kind of revolutionary thinking about cooking and thinking about savoriness. The word means, it's like um, an informal word for tasty in Japanese. So he just calls it like tasty or deliciousness is essentially the name of it. So he approaches this guy who owns one of the biggest commercial iodine plants in Japan, and they start uh, commercial production of monosodium glutamate. Um, eventually they do this by fermenting, you can get it from fermented wheat, corn, um, some, some other fermentations too, and essentially you can make it from there. Again, science isn't my forte, I'm gonna leave the explanation of the process to Soma, we'll talk second. So here's the thing, they essentially invented this new condiment. It's not something that had any kind of precedent, so they had to teach Japanese housewives that they wanted it that this is something that they wanted in their kitchen. So they launched this huge advertising campaign that was revolutionary in many, many ways. Here is an image of some of the early packaging. Um, the company, by the way, that they launched was Ajinomoto, and they still produce MSG under that brand name to this day. If you go down to Chinatown, go to a Japanese market, you undoubtedly find it. But the early bottles, they designed very specifically to look like perfume bottles so that it would appeal to the Japanese housewife. And I especially love, you see the ones in the background that look like makeup cases, like they look like you know powder for your skin. So this is very conscious to appeal to the housewife. But they had two really effective forms of attack to, to make women want this product. Japan was changing in the early 20th century. Um, more women were becoming educated and also the international idea of home economics and food science was coming into vogue. So women were now being trained to provide nutritious balanced meals for their family through science. So they appealed to that that love of science, like this came from a lab, this we have, you know, this science made this for you and your family to have the most deliciousness in your food. So every woman that graduated from a home economics program got a bottle of MSG with a recipe booklet to help incorporate it into their cooking. The other thing they did is they appealed to this desire to be more Western. 
Western culture was becoming very popular in Japan. So Western was fashion. So if they can associate, even though this was a Japanese product with a Japanese source, if they can associate its modernity with a modern kind of westernized Japanese housewife, then it's going to sell. They also did all kinds of other crazy things, like allegedly they, they invented advertising on trains. So like, um, who's, the, who's the plastic surgeon guy? His name just fell out of my head. <laughs> this is the ancestor of Dr. Zismore advertising. They were the first to place ads in subway cars and in trains. So they launched this huge campaign, and within 20 years, this was hugely accepted by the Japanese public. So much so that in 1931, they introduced a table shaker. So this goes on the table next to your salt and next to your pepper, so you can just shake MSG whenever you want. Um, so there's a, they still make this, this is from their contemporary website, but they also make this much more amazing product, which is much more recent, so I'm gonna have to jump out of history for a second. And as far as I can tell, it's only available in Japan and Korea. Um, this is a cell phone charm. It's so cute, isn't it? It's in the shape of a panda, and is MSG inside, so you can talk on your phone, and then like if you need some MSG, you can just shake it out. I wanted to get one. I wanted to get one for you, Soma, for our first anniversary, but it, the price was in yen, and clearly it wasn't going to come in time. So anyway, we can only dream. Um, so if anyone sees this in Chinatown, get one for me, because I want it so desperately. I don't even have a cell phone case, but I will get one so I can have this on it. So blah, blah, blah. So Japan. But we don't really associate MSG with Japanese food. We really associate it more with Chinese food. So how did it get to China? Well, it got there uh, via Taiwan. So Taiwan is a Japanese colony. And Ajinomoto goes in hardcore with their advertising, just really um, just saturating the market with MSG. And it becomes particularly popular with um, street food. There's a lot of, there's like a big street food culture in Taiwan even to this day. So they were buying like industrial sized tins, but then they were also selling small measures of it to any housewife or any, anyone who wanted to come buy some could buy like a pinch or two of MSG from any street vendor. But it really, becomes a big part of culture through street food. From Taiwan, it goes to Southeast Asia and mainland China, but in those areas, they didn't accept the Japanese brands because the Japanese and beginning of the 20th century was not viewed so favorably by mainland China. They were seen as imperialist. So knockoff brands are created within China. Um, this was the most well-known one. It's advertised as Buddha's hand because the main appeal of MSG is that it was vegetarian. Not just vegetarian, but vegan. And, but it gave whatever you made with it the savory qualities of something that had meat. That's what's so amazing about kombu dashi, is that it's a vegetarian slash vegan broth that has the savory qualities of a meat stock. So they advertised it specifically towards vegetarian Buddhist communities in China. It gets popular in Buddhist communities, but it gets most popular in Chinese restaurants. So this brings us to the United States. Um, Chinatown. Now, there's been a Chinatown in New York since the 1830s, but Chinese food and Chinese restaurants really start becoming popular um, just after the turn of the 20th century, the same time MSG is being developed. 
culture is changing. We're going from a, a nation that would go home for lunch to now people go into Manhattan and they work and their homes in the suburbs and they're commuting and they don't have time to go home. And we're like a busy, hard scrabble world. So you gotta like go to a diner or go to a Chinese restaurant and just get something quick to eat. So Chinese food is really, really taking off. And Chinese restaurants were the main institutions that were using MSG back in China. So that practice came here to America. So there was MSG being used in um, Chinese fast food, essentially. Um, Ajinomoto tries to market in America in the early 20th century. And in 1947, there's also an American brand of MSG called Accent, which still exists. This is from their modern website. Same deal, it's just a MSG shaker that um, helps to blend flavors together and improve the taste of meat. I love the kind of magical general terms that <laughs> MSG has talked about it. You can still get accent if you want it. Um, but it finds its big home in commercial food production in America. You know, Accent's coming out in 1947. Ajinomoto and other companies are trying to market here in the mid-20th century. And that's also when convenience food is kind of exploding. Canned food, frozen food, after World War I and World War II, we're using technology that was developed during the war to feed soldiers um, to now feed our general population. And um, this is also a lovely quote. It was so adapted, so um, embraced by commercial food culture because it had the advantage, had the capacity of making bland, inexpensive food flavorful. Which, you know, today we're thinking, oh, convenience food, we're just dumping some MSG on it, it'll taste good. But I love that it also connects to Dr. Um, um, I forgot his name, Dr. Ikeda's um, original purpose. That was what he wanted to do, was make nutritious food more flavorful. And on the website to this day of Ajinomoto, it says that they are essentially, let me read you the quote, unceasing efforts to improve the world's diet through umami have continued to this day. So it's still like in this attitude of health food. Well, whatever it is, it's gotta be so healthy for you that it tastes terrible, we'll put some MSG on it and it will taste good. Okay, so there's our history. But MSG is not known for its deliciousness today. It's known as being kind of ominous, right? You see it in there, it's a food additive, it's commercially produced, and it makes people sick. So I got really curious when this started happening, because the early history, um, even in, um, you can read through early articles in the New York Times where there's like recipes for like MSG meatloaf and you just like throw, meatloaf, throw um, MSG in your meatloaf and it improves flavor and talking about it in these terms of just improving the flavor of food. So when did it change? Well, it has this name of Chinese food syndrome. And this title comes from a 1968 letter that was written to the New England Journal of Medicine um, by a Chinese doctor who had been living in America for quite some time, about 20 years. Um, I just want to read you a couple excerpts from, excerpts from his letter to the New, New England Journal of Medicine. For several years since I've been in this country, I've experienced a strange syndrome whenever I've eaten out in a Chinese restaurant, especially one that has served northern Chinese food. The syndrome, which usually begins 15 to 20 minutes after I've eaten the first dish, lasts for about two hours without any hangover effect. The most prominent symptoms are numbness at the back of the neck, gradu gradually radiating to both arms and the back, general weakness and palpitation. I know, geez. 
excerpt, so I'm gonna skip a little bit. Later on he says, after some discussion with my colleagues, um, and at first speculated that it might be caused by some ingredient in the soy sauce, to which quite a few people are allergic. Some suggest that these symptoms may be caused by cooking wine, which is used generously in most Chinese restaurants, because the syndrome resembles, to some extent, the effects of alcohol. <laughs> Others have suggested that it may be caused by the monosodium glutamate seasoning used to a great extent for seasoning in Chinese restaurants. Another alternative is that the high sodium content of the Chinese food may produce temporary height... <laughs> these are very math... Um, Doctory terms, hypermetremia, which may consequently cause intracellular hypokalemia, resulting in numbness of the muscles, generalized weakness, and palpitation. The Chinese food causes thirst, which would also be due to the high sodium content. So this is from Robert Homan Kwok, MD. Um, from this letter, what I think is interesting about it is that he lists four different possible explanations for how he's feeling after Chinese food. But for some reason, in the fallout for the, the, the one that is grabbed onto is MSG, as opposed to a high sodium content, as opposed to the alcohol, as opposed to the soy sauce. It's MSG that is pulled out of this and the people start doing studies on. Soma's gonna talk more about this. So I don't wanna talk as much about the studies themselves. What's more interesting to me is the fallout of the studies. Up until this time, the Ajinomoto company, the main producers and purveyors of MSG, have been advertising MSG under the beauty of science. Science has brought you this amazing thing that will make your food taste so good. But now science is dangerous. There's this MSG scare, and the MSG scare comes right after um, all of the activity around artificial sweeteners, the people are discovering artificial sweeteners are causing cancer in mice, and there are those studies too. So in the 1960s, we've got this really negative view of science and food. So what Ajinomoto does is it looks backwards. It looks back a century to what Dr. Akita was first saying 100 years ago, that this powder provided the flavor of umami, the fifth sense, the savory sense. So they rebrand their whole company not as science, but as natural. What is umami? What is this basic taste? You can get it through MSG. This is, they even fund the studies to, um, the first official study is trying to identify this fifth taste, this fifth flavor in our food. They fund that to get scientific proof behind the fact that umami and therefore MSG is naturally occurring. So I find that really, really interesting. The moral of the story, as I see it, and of course you can disagree, we love that. When MSG, whether it's in the form of a cell phone charm in the shape of a panda, or whether it's in the form of glutamic acid, which when you combine with salt, makes MSG. If it's in this type of food, if it's in molecular gastronomy, if it's in Le Bernardin, it's praised as umami, this rich fifth flavor sense, this new dimension, this new discovery of natural delicious food that we are so thrilled to put in our mouths. It's wonderful, it's good. When it appears in Chinese fast food, it's evil. It's the same product, two different foods. And I think just the fact that it's called Chinese food syndrome, Chinese restaurant syndrome is very telling and very interesting. Thank you, everybody. The first thing 
if you want to understand MSG and its history and why it exists and you know what it tastes like, the first thing you need to understand is umami. Um, and umami is like a, a fullness or a savoriness or like a, a meatiness minus the meat part of it um, that you experience whenever you either I eat MSG or you eat that stock that you had earlier or any of that. But why why does it even taste like that? You know why do we even like it? So. The job of your mouth is to decide whether you should be eating something or you shouldn't be eating something. So it's basically a gatekeeper. Taste tells you, yes, this is good, you should eat more, or no, this is bad, you should eat less of it. So for example, uh, we really like sugar these days. Like, you know, we all go out and eat tons of candy bars all the time, I don't know. Um, but the idea is that early man really needed to get sugar as an energy source. So. Um, if a caveman came across a fruit, like a mango, you'd really want to eat that because it's a great source of energy, except now it's way easier to come across you know, Mars bars instead of mangoes. So we do what we can. So the idea is just that because it was good, our mouths are rewarding us. Um, but another thing that we need besides sugars is proteins. Um, but the thing is there are like a bazillion different proteins and your body isn't like, I really like muscle milk and I hate everything else. So you have to figure out a different way to do it. So what you do instead is the building blocks of proteins are amino acids. And so amino acids can kind of give you a clue that what you're eating is a protein. So there are, there are a bunch of different amino acids, but there are 22 that show up in like all living things or like they're used uh, as the building blocks of the genetic code. And basically, your mouth was like, great. All we're going to do is we're going to look out for one of these random amino acids. And when we're eating this amino acid, it probably means we're also eating a bunch of protein, too. And what that amino acid was is glutamate. And so generally, it's locked up inside of a protein. Um, but when a food is cooked, or when a food is fermented, or when it's cured, or when food ripens, um, the gluten, like the protein breaks down and the, the amino acids are free to like run around and like some amino acids go over here and some go over there and one of them is glutamate. So <clears throat> it can like bind with sodium and then become monosodium glutamate. Um, and then it's just a kind of cue that what you're eating is protein. So the reason why you think that uh, something that has glutamates in it is delicious is because your body wants you to eat protein. So MSG is kind of a wolf in protein's clothing. The idea being that you're not actually eating a bunch of protein, but it tastes like you are, so you're really enjoying what you're eating. It also doesn't look like a wolf. Um, it looks more like this, like an amazing bunch of crystals. Uh, sometimes it's a powder, sometimes it's incredibly large crystals that are kind of intimidating. Um, what does the stuff that I gave you guys look like? It's a powder? Yeah, right? So it's not so scary. You're like, maybe it's tiny salt. You don't know. <laughs> so, all right. <clears throat> now, we've established that umami is a flavor. It's the, it's the fifth taste um, after sweet, salty, bitter, and sour. But the question is, like, it is a question there, but it's not actually a question, is the fifth taste. Um, but for a long time, the Western world was like, no, no, no. We don't think this is actually a taste why don't you back off and let us keep our four that we know about and just keep umami in, in the Eastern world. Um, and in a lot of the books you read about umami or the articles you read, it's, it's cast very much as like, 
Japan was like, hey, umami is real. And then America was like, no, it's not. And then it took like 100 years for people to figure it out. Um, but really, it was more like it, it did take 100 years from 1907 um, when Ikeda first created uh, MSG to maybe like the late 90s or 2000s for people to actually acknowledge that umami was a flavor. Um, it took that long for people to acknowledge that it, it was real. But the question is, why did it take so long? Was it just because Westerners were a bunch of jerks who were judging the East, or was it something else? So first, we have to talk about like what actually is taste. Um, and taste is broken up into, well, taste is different from flavor. So flavor is a sensation of smelling something as well as a sensation of tasting something on your tongue. So we do not care about smelling something right now. Um, so if you eat like strawberries, like this person is here, they're smelling strawberries from outside of their mouth, they're smelling strawberries once they're chewing it and like little bits of the strawberry going up into their nose. Well, we don't care, all we care about is taste. Taste is everything that happens specifically on the tongue. So it's all a very like, a piece of matter goes onto your tongue, interacts with your tongue, and then it's taste, so not scent at all. So, first got started in about 420. Um, Democritus, he was the laughing philosopher. He looks pretty scary in that picture, but I assure you he was not. Um, he, he wasn't actually a big flavor guy. What he's known for is he's one of the founders of atomic theory, which isn't creating bombs, um, but rather atomic theory is the idea that all matter can be broken into small discrete particles. And he kind of applied this into taste. So he, he thought, okay, we have a bunch of tastes and every different taste is a result of a different shape of atom that things are built up of. So sweet things um, were made up of large and round atoms. Salty things were isosceles triangles. <laughs> Bitter things were small scaling triangles. And I don't know if you paid attention in geometry class, but scaling means the sides aren't all the same size and the angles aren't all the same. And isosceles is like a very nice proper triangle. Um, and then sour were large and angular, so they were kind of like busted up sweet things. <laughs> this kind of, this, this went over pretty well actually. Um, people were like, you know, you have a good thing going with this atomic theory, we're totally gonna run with all of your flavor theory as well. So in 350 BC-ish, um, Aristotle published two things. There was uh, on, what is it, on sense and the sensible and de animus. And he thought that everything was based on two major flavors, which was bitterness and sweetness, which he thought of as like black and white. And everything in between um, was just kind of, uh, he, he always compared things to colors. And so between bitter and sweetness was salty, sour, astringent, pungent, and harsh. I don't actually know what harsh means, but that's always the translation. And if it's not harsh, it's something even more ridiculous to understand than harsh. So. That's what we're gonna go with. So everyone loved Aristotle's seven flavors for an incredibly, incredibly long time, seven tastes, sorry. Um, but in 1566, this guy, John Fernell, he was a French physician, and he was like, great. We have Aristotle seven, I'm gonna add two more. Fatty and insipid. <laughs> now I bet you're laughing at insipid. A little while later, Carl Linnaeus, father of the Linnaean system, was like, no, no, great, let's do this again. I'm adding aqueous, nauseous, viscous to your fatty and, and insipid. So everyone's like, okay, 
Who even knows? We don't understand any of this. 1880, Wilhelm Wundt was like, okay, okay. Everyone kind of agrees on these four basic tastes. Like throughout time, everyone's adding their own, but like the salty, sweet, bitter, sour, kind of, kind of sticking it out. Um, but he likes alkaline and metallic as well. I don't know what alkaline things taste like. But luckily enough, um, there's one thing that solves all problems in modern day and in 1900, and that is cocaine. <laughs> and so what happened was topical anesthetics in the mouth became popular around the turn of the century. And this is a cat from cashcats.biz. Um, and so <clears throat> the, the idea was that once they could actually apply anesthetics to your tongue, they could start to actually test ideas about you know, whether they start to anesthetize you and like what flavors go first and what flavors go last. And it was really the beginning of being able to test sort of like your tongue versus flavors. Because before it was much more philosophic. People kind of lay back and they're like, well, I have a feeling that metallic should probably be a, a taste. And everyone's like, that's good enough for me. Write a paper about it. <laughs> so in the 20s, my favorite guy ever, Hans Henning, he's, he loved shapes and he like, he would put scents on shapes and flavors on shapes and just whatever. He would put it on a shape. And so he created the taste tetrahedron, which had sweet, sour, bitter, and salty on it. It's like a pyramid. And any flavor that existed in the world could be put on one side of that pyramid. So here we have grapefruit, which is pretty bitter, a little bit sweet, and kind of sour. He was also insistent that everything had to be on one of the planes of the pyramid, so it couldn't be in the middle. So if you salted your grapefruit, I guess it would cease to be a grapefruit because like, <laughs> nothing could exist in the middle of the pyramid. And people really liked it, so I don't know why nothing could be all four, but that was his deal. <clears throat> so basically the idea was that Throughout time, people think of these four basic tastes that exist in the West, and the new mommy shows up, and we're like, no, we're not going to add it. But basically, through the history of the West, like, we didn't know anything. Like, we're just guessing and stabbing in the dark, and like every 10 years, someone invents a different <laughs> list of tastes that exist in the mouth. So, what, what did we have in the West? Um, the important thing was what we didn't have, and that was we didn't have kombu. In the Western world, we only had that in connection with meat. So every time we're trying to taste something savory, we're also tasting all these extra flavors along with it. And I think the best kind of comparison to this is if you wanted to understand sweetness, but you could only taste vegetables. So for example, you eat a carrot, and carrots can be sweet, but there's a ton of other flavors going on in there. Maybe there's a little bitterness, you know, but it's, <clears throat> it's really hard to just isolate the sweetness and kind of think about it as a concept. So for us in the West, we were like, uh, you know, we have a bunch of other flavors going on. You know, maybe it's combined with one of those. But um, in 1809, Louis-Jacques Thernard, he coined this term osmosome, which is the best thing to say and sounds incredibly delicious. Um, and it was the essence of meaty taste. So what would come out when you cooked a stock for a long time or just anything that was like, it was, you know, they, they were obsessed with making meat essence for a while, like very reduced meat stocks, and osmosome was that sort of flavor. Um, in 1824, not going to pronounce his name, I will, Jean-Anthelme Brulat Savarin, 
Uh, he published a book called The Physiology of Taste, which is funny because he was much more of like a poet and an author and a philosopher than an actual scientist. So it's just like a bunch of his feelings about how taste should work. Um, and one of the things that he said about osmosome was, osmosome can be compared with alcohol, which tipsified many generations of men before any of them knew how to strip it naked in the analytical process of distillation in a laboratory. It sounds hilarious, but also the kind of idea behind this is if we could take the essence of meat and the essence of savoriness and kind of take it away from meat and use it independently, it would be as powerful in our society as when we learn to actually make alcohol. Unfortunately, osmosome just fell out of favor a while after that because they were like, it's too complicated. We have a bunch of other tastes going on. We're, we're not really ready to deal with this. Um, MSG made the idea of umami game a little steam, but it really didn't go anywhere for an incredibly long time. But then around late 90s, 2000s, uh, we came across a receptor for umami on the tongue. So on the tongue, you have a bunch of taste buds, and what this <clears throat> one particular receptor did was it reacted with glutamates in order to give you a sense of like fullness in the same way that like there are sodium channels that react with the sodium in table salt to taste salty or like bitter ones or sweet ones. They all have special receptors on your tongue that are able to taste that certain flavor. And we were like, oh, hey, we found one from, for umami. So clearly umami is an actual real life flavor. It could no longer just be an opinion. Um, the thing is about taste buds is they were discovered in 1867, but they're still kind of a mystery. Um, I know that we all learned about this super cool tongue map back when we were in school. Uh, it turns out tongue map's not real. Um, <laughs> it took them 100 years to figure that out. Uh, and we're still discovering new tastes as we go along. So if we remember this cool guy who was like fatty and insipid, obviously those are real tastes. It turns out that fattiness is actually something that your tongue probably can test for. So even now we're still discovering uh, new tastes as we go along. So, in 1825, it was decided that, you know, we would tipsify ourselves if we realized how to make, basically, MSG. Um, but instead of us needing to make MSG, I think it's really important, the fact that, basically, nature did this for us. Um, it wasn't us waltzing in and, and inventing a completely new compound. Um, nature created a bunch of glutamates, which are the things, as we talked about before, that's the amino acid that signals to your tongue they're eating protein. And your tongue's like, I love protein. This is incredible. Let's have more glutamates. So what's out there in nature that tastes like protein, that, that is a glutamate? Breast milk? Um, human breast milk, not cow's milk, um, but rather human breast milk is actually 0.02% MSG, basically. And so you think to yourself, OK, I wouldn't feed a baby MSG because I'm terrified of MSG. 0.02% though, uh, that's not very much. You know, I'm not really scared of that. And I'm like, all right, let's raise the stakes a little bit. A ripe tomato has 0.15% MSG in it. So that's about 10 times the amount that's in breast milk. Um, as, as a tomato gets riper and riper, it tastes better and better. Part of that is because there are more available sugars for you, and part of it because there are more available glutamates to give that like fullness taste and make it taste more delicious. 
And you're like, well, 0.15% I'm still not impressed by that. If you could say double it, that would be cool. Hey, I'm going to double it. Great, 0.35% cured ham. I'm from Virginia. We love cured ham there. Virginia ham, eat it all the time. 0.35% um, of that is basically nature's MSG. And you're like, nope, still not good enough. Why don't you double that? Sure, soy sauce, 0.75%. That's 750 milligrams per 100 grams of soy sauce. Um, we're getting up there, right? That's kind of intense. Like you probably eat soy sauce and maybe you don't have, you don't break out in hives every time you do it even if you think you're allergic to MSG. But you're like, no, that's still under a percent. That's not cool enough. Fish sauce, which we, which we did drink up here earlier, which was horrifying <laughs> in large amounts. It's actually 1.3%. MSG. And so you look at this list and you're like, okay, Soma, I understand. Chinese food is full of MSG and they also have MSG in their soy sauce and they also have MSG in their uh, fish sauce. But let's get real. I love Italian food. It's not the same thing at all. It's a completely different world that is completely independent of glutamates. Oh, hey, Parmesan cheese, 1.5% MSG whenever you eat Parmesan cheese. It's incredible the number of free glutamates that are in something like Parmesan cheese. Whenever you look at a chart, it's always on the like way left-hand side that's like going off of the chart and you're, I don't know, it, it's kind of amazing that as something can age and ripen as you do with a cheese, um, like Parmesan cheese, um, it ends up, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of MSG inside of something natural when you think of MSG as being something that is artificial. But if we want to get a little bit closer to home, um, one place that even if you haven't eaten Parmesan cheese recently, glutamates are hanging out in your brain. Um, glutamates are uh, one of the uh, most popular, popular isn't the word for it, uh, abundant, <laughs> one of the most abundant neurotransmitters in your body. So people who are anti-MSG say like, oh man, you get overloaded in this and it's insane. But in theory, your brain is just full of glutamates all the time. So who cares if they come from the ocean or from your brain? You know, one of them tastes better than the other. Don't eat other people's brains. So the question is, why do people have this big thing about no MSG? You know, like no one asks if it's bad for you. Um, it's the, the fear of MSG is simply driven by fear and it's not driven by science. So you've heard from people that, you know, they're sensitive to MSG or you feel like you're sensitive to MSG or, you know, everyone's sensitive to MSG or MSG is poison. And it's just, they've done all of these studies and that like overwhelmingly like randomized double blind studies always come up with no MSG is completely fine for you and it's not causing you problems and all it's doing is giving you an incredibly delicious dish to eat. Um, like the compound is the same whether you find it in broccoli or mushrooms or Parmesan cheese or something that, you know, in Chinese food they sprinkle on it before they serve it to you. Um, Oh, there's another. No, 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 just, I had to get the point across. Um, it turns out that it's just, it's sodium. Um, it was the fourth thing that was listed in um, that New England Journal of Medicine article. Um, and it's just, when you eat cheap food, you're eating a ton of sodium. And whether the sodium comes from MSG or whether the sodium comes from just normal table salt, you're dehydrating yourself. And what happens when you get dehydrated, you get headaches. You know, you start to lose sensation in things especially if you eat a ton of salt, which, I mean, I don't know 
how much salt people are actually putting into Chinese food. Um, but according to studies, MSG, totally fine. Um, if you eat a lot of salt, you know, salt can kill you. MSG will not really kill you. It takes five times as much MSG to kill you than salt. So stick with MSG, not so much salt. But let's say you're still scared of MSG. You're kind of curious about what's going on. <laughs> on a label, it might say no MSG. It might say MSG, monosodium glutamate. Um, but the thing is, there are other things masquerading out there as not MSG that actually are MSG. No, I love MSG. It's delicious. But who knows what else is, is it? Yeast extract. Um, so autolyzed yeast is what it's called. And auto, autolysis is the fancy cellular name for suicide. So what happens is you put a bunch of yeast in water and you cover it in salt. And the yeast are like, oh, I can't live in this salty water. And then they kill themselves. And then the enzymes that are inside of the yeast kind of digest the proteins for you. Proteins made up of amino acids. One of those amino acids is glutamate. So what happens is as the, those yeasts break down, they end up creating natural MSG. So something like Marmite and Vegemite is basically you know, MSG spread, which is delicious. <laughs> um, another more popular kind of thing is hydrolyzed anything. Um, hydrolyzed soy protein, hydrolyzed vegetable protein, hydrolyzed any protein, probably any you know, verb to protein. Um, is causing that protein to break down and turn into amino acids, including glutamate. So like I talked about before, I think, um, one of the things that you can do is you take a bunch of wheat gluten, which is basically uh, the protein that comes out of uh, like wheat flour. You kind of wash away all the starches, um, and then you boil it in sulfuric acid for about a day. And then you neutralize it with lye. I was going to try to do it with baking soda, because who has lye lying around? Um, and then you kind of skim off the crystallized bits. And what's happened is over that 24 hours of boiling um, your protein in acid, it's broken down all of the proteins into amino acids. And you end up with an incredibly flavorful broth. Um, once, once you can get over the fact that it's, it's simply uh, like busted up proteins, and you uh, end up getting things like the soy sauce that you buy or that you get given by cheap uh, Chinese restaurants, like the stuff that comes in packets, um, that's all just hydrolyzed soy protein. So it's broken down to the building blocks of proteins, and then it tastes delicious as a result. Chicken pox vaccines have MSG in them, and not even fake MSG. In, in, yeah, it's true. So in, you don't eat it. You get it put in your body. But as I was researching it, people were like, oh my god, do you know that chicken pox vaccine has MSG? And I was like, no, I didn't. I'm putting this in my slides. <laughs> so it actually, it actually lists uh, sucrose, phosphate, and monosodium L-glutamate and processed gelatin as stabilizers. So for some reason, gelatin is a stabilizer in chicken pox vaccine. So you could drink it, and it probably tastes good. But let's, let's go back to places that it actually belongs in. So we were talking about uh, dashi stock earlier. And one of the things Sarah mentioned was when they grate these uh, cured, dried tuna fish called benito into the stock. And it really makes like a rich, flavorful broth when combined with uh, the kanbu seaweed. But the thing is, there's a very strong Buddhist tradition um, in, you know, like China and Japan. And the idea is like, we can't put tuna fish 
into our stock because then it will no longer be vegetarian. Um, so we have to figure out something else to do. So they were like, okay, let's take it out and let's just put in mushrooms. It'll be fine, shiitake mushrooms. How delicious is that? The answer is it was incredibly delicious. And everyone's like, like there's no reason vegetarian food should taste this good. Like we took out a meat and we put in a mushroom and for some reason this is incredible. And the answer is science. So when you think of MSG, now, you think about glutamates, you think about monosodium glutamate or glutamic acid or just glutamates in general, but it turns out there are a bunch of other compounds that are less common because they're more expensive to produce or are in fewer foods that have the same sort of effect. So uh, inosinate and uh, guaiolates, IMP and GMP, um, they're two different compounds. They're ribonucleotides, if you like science, and what they do is they don't act the way the MSG acts um, to add umami, like by themselves they're not very flavorful. They're actually kind of a jetpack for umami. So if you have a little bit of MSG already in something and you add IMP or GMP, bam, it's like 50 to 30 times more of an umami flavor than you would have with just MSG alone. So these guys, whether they're found artificially or whether they're found in like foods you can add to something, um, they really, really ratchet up the umami. So the Bonito Flakes um, that they would put into the dashi stock, that has inosinate in it, which really amps up the umami flavor. And it turns out the shiitake mushrooms, dried shiitake mushrooms, have a lot of GMP in it, which really amps up the flavor too. So even though it's a completely vegetarian stock, it still tastes incredible once you substitute the tuna, or once you substitute the mushrooms for the tuna because they have these crazy other compounds in them. And that explains anchovy pizza, which in theory might sound gross. It sounds gross to me. But what you have is tomatoes, ripe tomatoes, which have been turned into sauce, which are very, very high in glutamates. And then on top of that, you have anchovies, which are very, very high in inosinates, which IMP, um, which is the other thing that kind of amps up the umami feel. So basically, your pizza is kind of an umami jetpacking up um, to be incredibly delicious by the combination of these two flavors. But you look at me and say, Soma, you talked about Parmesan cheese earlier. Why aren't you giving the mozzarella cheese credit on this pizza? Because um, mozzarella cheese is really shitty when it comes to MSG. Uh, the thing is, is it takes time in order for MSG to be or glutamates to be created in Parmesan cheese. So you can create glutamates by aging things or fermenting things or cooking things, um, but it turns out that Parmesan cheese is aged for a very long time, which makes it taste great because it builds up all those glutamates. Whereas mozzarella, like, it's a fresh cheese. You know, like it's moist and it's really fatty and it tastes good, but it doesn't taste good because it has glutamates in it. It tastes good just, I don't know, mozzarella cheese tastes good. Um, the reason why Parmesan cheese tastes good is because of umami, but mozzarella tastes good for a completely different reason. So we brought in a little bit of science there, but let's just take science to its logical conclusion, and that logical conclusion is Doritos. <laughs> now, the list of ingredients in this thing of Doritos, it includes like cheddar cheese and Romano cheese, probably other cheeses. What, cheese, what does cheese have in it? Glutamates. Um, what have we got in here? I think there, there's tomato powder. What do ripe tomatoes have in them? Glutamates. 
Um, what else? Garlic powder, no. Probably <laughs> natural and artificial flavor. Um, but there are whey protein concentrate. I'm sure those proteins have been broken down into amino acids such as glutamates. So there's a lot of MSG kind of things in there, but what really amps up the Doritos to make them taste uh, five to 30 times better is this stuff down at the bottom, disodium inosinate and disodium guanolate, which are the jetpacks for MSG, which just like shoot Doritos up into the tasty sphere. <laughs> so, but let's say we're like, great, I understand where I can find it in my food, but let's do a bunch of science experiments on it. So in the 1950s, the, the Quartermaster Food Container Institute in Chicago, the army was like, guys, army food sucks. Can you please figure out a way to make army food taste better? And they were like, oh man, MSG, we got this. So they took 50 foods, and over a period of 18 months, they tested 50 foods on uh, 2,200 people. And at the end of this test period, they found out that 43 out of those 50 foods were improved by adding MSG to them. And only four of them were made worse tasting by adding MSG. And those were like milk and desserts. <laughs> so don't, don't look for any sort of MSG in your desserts, um, but you know, your Mars bars, but everything else, it's, it's delicious and incredible. So we talked about Taiwan earlier as a sort of gateway into getting uh, MSG into China. And when people think like, oh, I ate some Chinese food, it probably had some MSG in it, I'm gonna die immediately. <laughs> it turns out that in one day, someone who lives in Taiwan eats enough, eats as much MSG as we do in six weeks. So one, one day, versus our six weeks, I think it's like three grams a day or so, whereas we consume 0.55 every week. Um, so they're just, they're packing in all the MSG and they're not dying and they're happy with all their food and they have night markets, so <laughs> they're great. Um, but now the important questions. Will mice like takeout Chinese food? Uh, this, right? He's eating noodles. Um, the answer is, Yes, mice actually are incredibly receptive to MSG. So when they start to eat things like takeout Chinese food, they really, really like it. Um, an important thing to note is between humans and like even primates, uh, and then on down to other mammals, is we taste things totally differently. For example, um, monkeys in like old world monkeys, they don't taste sweetness, I believe. Um, in the same way that we do, like sugar isn't sweet to them, whereas monkeys in the new world totally love sugar. So even something as close to us as, you know, apes and all of that, other primates don't taste things the same way. So it's awesome that mice really like Chinese food. So next up, um, will cats like Doritos? That cat is a vegetarian. Um, cats kind of, they'll kind of like Doritos. Um, they do like MSG. But the problem is they don't have the same sort of synergy between IMP and GMP that we talked about before um, with MSG. So they don't have that sort of jetpack to launch Doritos up to the stratosphere. They eat Doritos and they're like, this is okay. And then we eat Doritos and we're like, this is 30 times better than what you're eating. So next time you're eating Doritos and you're looking at your cat, you can just be like, poor cat, I feel so bad for you. Also, cats can't taste sweetness. Nothing to do with MSG, but I think it's incredible. 
So, will dogs like eating vegetarian Japanese food? Yes. <laughs> um, they don't actually like MSG by itself. Um, dogs, their MSG and IMP are kind of reversed. So they love to eat IMP and GMP, the inosinates and the uh, guanolates. They think that's great. It tastes great to them. It tastes like MSG. And then if they say MSG, they're like, oh, this is kind of shitty. But if you have kombu stock and then you add in shiitake mushrooms, they're like, this is the best food I've ever eaten. I really love vegetarian Japanese food. So lessons learned. Number one, your headaches are all in your head, which is a, is a hilarious pun, yes, but also you're not actually allergic to MSG, and if you think you are, it's your own fault. Number two, there's no escape from MSG. Whether you're eating mushrooms or Parmesan cheese or going out to eat Thai food or eating anchovy pizzas, you are filling yourself full of glutamates all of the time. So when you complain about how you, know, you don't want to eat MSG, it's impossible. <laughs> Lastly, cats hate junk food, whether it's Doritos or candy bars. So don't try to feed them to your cats. And that is the end. <laughs>